BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. This is James Altucher here with a very special, exceedingly special (laughs) weekly podcast of the James Altucher Show. And the reason it's so special is because I have my beautiful wife as my guest, Claudia Azula Altucher. Claudia, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for the compliment. And you know... There's a reason you're on this show, because just being my wife is obviously not qualification enough, although that's right. a pretty high qualification. You said a pretty high. It's a 24 seven job. Yes, it's a 24 seven job. But the reason is, is because you wrote a book and you had a co-author, which was me. But together we wrote a book called The Power of No, which is coming out in a week or so. And um and I wanted to talk to you about it. So How lucky am I? How lucky am I? I get to write a book with the James Altucher just because I'm married to him. I mean, seriously, that's my luck. I'm no, a lucky girl. No, what, what we're going to find out during this show is that there are, are very other important reasons that you're co-author of this book. Uh, other than being married to me, I should and, hope so. And in fact, <laughs> uh, in fact, I was lucky because I got to write uh, an entire book. But only really write half of it. Like I, I got you. I got I like outsourced half the book to you. So that was really great. And you had a lot of great stories. So I think actually your stories are sort of better than mine in this book. So, um, but we're gonna get to that. We're gonna get. We're to gonna that. get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. First, um, do you mind, Claudia? I'm gonna tell the story of how this book got started. I love that story. So, so what happened was um, this was like almost exactly a year ago. I had just come out with the book choose yourself and i got two phone calls on the exact same day and it was really weird how i got these phone calls so the first phone call was from porter stansbury and of course stansbury and associates hosts this podcast and that was in part one of the results that came out of this phone call but porter called me to tell me he loved the book and he wanted to help me sell the book on his list and he he uh, amazingly sold, I think it was about 30,000 copies of the book on his list. So it was just showed me the power of, of email marketing. And, and, you know, also he had a very good audience that, that listened to him and, and he, and it was really impressive how much he, he liked the book. But so I got a call from, and but I knew Porter as this really big financial newsletter guy, someone who I thought was only interested in stocks and gold and nothing else. And then I got another call. The call was from uh, Hay House, which is this very spiritually oriented 
uh, book publisher. So they publish guys like Wayne Dyer, who's been a guest on my weekly podcast as well. Uh, they publish, um, they've published Deepak Chopra in the past, Marion Williamson in the past. So Gabby very- Bernstein. Gabby Bernstein, who was also on my podcast, who just released a, a best-selling book. So, so they published these really um, spiritually oriented uh, writers. And so I'm thinking to myself, that's very interesting. So the people who uh, have always, you know, been, you know, valued stocks and stock newsletters, they're suddenly interested in a book that talks a little bit more about the spiritual side of things, but also on the spiritual side, the most spiritually oriented publisher, they realize that you can't just believe in angels. You have to also pay the bills. And so my book kind of choose yourself kind of covers both sides of that. So Hay House asked me, well, what are you working on next? And I said, as a joke, don't tell them this, although they'll probably be listening to it. I said, as a joke, let's do the power of no. And that just title just came off the top of my head in part because, you know, one of my favorite inspirational books is The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And I figured, ah, let's just do The Power of Now, but without the W. And to their credit, uh, Patty Gift, who who is the acquisitions director for Hay House, she laughed and, and got the joke. Uh, but she said, I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> so so but what's interesting is. Of course, it started out as me just blurting this out. But then I realized, you know, people tend to write books, not only, you know, people tend to become experts on the things that were very, very difficult for them. So for me, it was very difficult for me throughout my life to choose myself. I always thought I needed a gatekeeper. I always thought I needed a publisher or I needed a a job or a a TV place to produce a TV show. I didn't think I could choose myself and do things on my own. It took me a long time to realize I can do things on my own and choose myself. And that's sort of documented both in the book, Choose Yourself, and in the book I just released, The Choose Yourself Stories. But... It's also been really hard for me to say no, and I think it's very hard for a lot of people to say no. And we'll we'll talk about the types of no because there are many types of no. But you know, I realized what a difficult process this had been for me while I was writing the book and all my different stories about how I realized, you know, I really learned the hard way how to say no because saying yes too much made me essentially go broke, ruined all my relationships and everything. And by saying no, the quality of my life got a lot better. And then, Claudia, we we decided to do this together because you had so many great stories about your own troubles. Yeah, not, not that I'm proud of it, but I do have some, uh, I, I believe I have from the most dysfunctional family or one of them, they deserve an Oscar, but really I'm grateful to them because they made me the woman I am today. But before we even get into that, I, I think one interesting thing that on what you said about uh, both uh, Porter Stansbury's organization and, and Hay House calling you on the same day, and to me, that was a sign that, um, you know, we gave a, a retreat at, uh, at a spiritual place not so long ago, and we couldn't use the word success in the title because this was spiritual. And 
uh, having both a, a sort of a financial um, organization and a spiritual organization come together to you, it seemed to me that we're ready as a people to say no to, oh, no, you know what, is either spiritual or is financial. And perhaps we're recognizing that both the financial needs spiritual and the spiritual needs financial. You know, it's not even that they meet each other. I think people are, re- are realizing that they're the same thing because spiritual is sort of a loaded word. Like it's like God or religion. Like we think, oh, I'm not spiritual. That's all, you know, that's right. Woohoo type stuff like, or, you know, witchy type stuff. But the reality is being grateful for what we have in our lives, which is another way of looking at the word spirituality, is very linked to um, reducing stress on the brain, which reduces, which which increases your chance for success financially, which increases your su- chance for success in relationships. You know, they all work together. There's no separation. It's not like you can exercise your body but ignore your mind and ignore your love and and things like that. Like they're all together. And I think now, you know, I see this. Being on the board of, uh, you know, one of the uh, biggest employers in the United States, I'm seeing we're we're in a, t- a day and age where there's greater economic uncertainty than ever. And it's scary. Like, people are scared. And, and to deal with that fear, you have to learn how to say no to the things that are yes, real, literally ruining your relationships, taking money out of your pocket, making you unhealthy. It's really scary. Yes, we all do need to learn to say no. Uh, absolutely, yes. So, Me, very included. So, so Claudia, I'm gonna. I, we haven't discussed this at all. We haven't really prepared Uh-oh. for for you being on here. I'm gonna ask you questions that I hope you don't mind answering. Some of these stories are mentioned in the book. Some maybe not. But um, you know, you you mentioned you had um, you know p- part of part of where we we have difficulty saying no is kind of the problems from our past where no was we were punished for saying no. So like where what's an instance where this might have happened to you in the past? Also, I'm going to start off I'm I'm softballing it at first. So so I'm starting it off easy on you and then we're going right. we're going to get well, harder. I I can, I can I can just tell you it's it's okay. Um I know the audience. I one thing I've learned is that nobody has it easy. Nobody. We all have a an origin story. And um, so I grew up in a family that uh, in which there was alcohol and uh, the response to alcohol. My father was an alcoholic and he abused me um, physically. He hit me very hard, very often. And uh, so I after you know how children that are abused, uh, their eyes sort of go into this state where they look at you, but they're not looking at you and. And that's where I went. I, I would just see the world and go into fantasies because that was an easier way to cope with the reality of what, what, ha- what was happening, which is I didn't understand why was I being um, uh, treated that way. Uh, there was never a conversation about feelings or what I was going through, nothing of the kind. It was all bottled up. Uh, my father was the center of attention and... Um, and so I learned to withdraw and live in a world of fantasy, which is a great thing because then I was in control. Well, let, my- me, let, let me ask you a question. Why would your father hate you? I mean, other than the fact that he was like totally trashed or whatever. 
I have an image, for example, uh, we're in, in a house we were renting outside of Buenos Aires by the river. And I believe I took my brother on a boat ride with me, me being 10, him being seven. And so, we... so basically you tried to drown your brother and your dad hit you. <laughs> yes. I think I would have hit my kid. Well, I wouldn't have hit my kid, but I would have been upset. Well, this one in particular, it wasn't a regular beating. I was in the bathroom and he waited outside the bathroom for about um, 10 minutes. I remember everything. And, and I finally said, OK, I'm going to come out of the bathroom. And when I did, all I remember is fire. He hit me 25 times. Very, very hard. Um, you know, th these are not things I like talking about, but is what happened. And um, I think he had his own disease. I don't blame him anymore. Um, I used to. I'm out of that game. And... Um, he was sick. He just didn't know what he was doing, literally, is is very clear to me. But as a, you know, 10-year-old, I really didn't understand what was going on. I understood maybe I did something wrong, but I, I wasn't sure what. There was never a conversation. And so um, this prompted me to withdraw. I couldn't trust this person who was in control and who would either feed me or not. And uh, so it was a very scary place to be in, as it is for any child. Where, of where was your mother at this time? Like, why couldn't she stop your dad from hitting you? Yeah, my mother was also sick. That's a question I've asked myself many times. Where was she? And uh, she would be sleeping. She also, I believe, either withdrew into fantasy and had a, a problem, a, a, a mental disease uh, of her own, uh, as you know. So it wasn't a very conducive, you know, I, I used to see, we call it the family Ingalls. I think you call it the little house in the from the prayer or something like prairie, that. Yeah. Yeah. And I was surprised that people talk like that, like parents actually talk to their children. I couldn't believe it. I wanted that. And there wasn't that. There was just the beatings and no explanation, no conversation, nothing. Uh, a very scary environment for a child. Yes. Uh, and so fantasy was a, a good place to go because in my fantasy, I could control things. And that's where control starts. You know, I can control things in my fantasy. So, and that's so control. So so would you then control try to control things in real life? That's right. It's a recipe for disaster because then as I grew up and went into the world and started having boyfriends, um, I would think... You had boyfriends before I had me? Boyfriends. I had boyfriends. Yes, James, I did. Damn. <laughs> and um, I, um, I didn't really have a boyfriend. What I would do is I would meet a man and I would think in my mind, in my fantasies, okay, he's the one. And it didn't matter whether I knew him or not. I just saw a picture of a Brilliant marriage, picket fence, two and a half children, and I want that, and I'm going to make you a part of that. My fantasy was taking over to control this person. And so imagine meeting a person that talks to you from that place. It's crazy. Um, so, you're saying, so you're saying you kind of had a hard time. You would get into a relationship, and the problem is you would have a hard time saying no to the fantasy. Like there would be this mirage and your that your eyes would see and you couldn't say no to what was happening, even if the guy wasn't necessarily fulfilling the image you had in your fantasy. That's like, exactly right. So if he was doing things that were, um, you know, whatever, you couldn't say no to those because it was outside of this mirage that you had. Yes, I had an image in my head of how I wanted it to look like. The guy fit the image. So I wanted to cut the guy out of reality and paste him into my collage. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to dive a lot deeper into your prior relationships to me in a second. But um, in, the, in the book, 
um, you and we, we uh, you know, I should say we, we have we start the book off with kind of a a bill of rights almost the the, the rights of no. The, here right. here are the different types. Your no bill of rights. The chapter is called, yes. and um, we sort of go from um, kind of the base level no to the highest level no. I'm gonna read these and and ask you about them. Okay, so okay. so the first one is um, you have the right to defend your life. And my first comment on that is people would say, of course, I have the right to defend my life. But, you know, uh, there's the basic example, like when the airplane's going down, they actually have to tell you, well, no, don't put the oxygen mask on your kid first. You have to put the oxygen mask on yourself first. So even in a very kind of basic but high tense situation like that, you have to be told that you you need to defend your own life first. So yes. people don't often know that they have the right to defend their lives. So what what's like another situation? Saying no to, for example, there is social pressure to smoke, to to do things that may look cool, uh, but you know they're not cool. Right. So, so so we so in this book we basically give you know we go over that we give advice on how to say no in these in these situations that's right um and and you know uh it, like you say it's a no to cigarettes alcohol toxic relationships you decide what you say no to nobody else does so that's very good that's uh, right um then you say uh you have the right to healthy relationships and real love yeah but when we get into this level it gets a little bit tricky because for example when i was doing this thing with the fantasies uh, I didn't know I was doing that. So if you don't know that you're doing it, it's very difficult to say no. And this is one of the reasons why I believe this conversation is important for us at this time, because I've heard people discuss money, like how much money did you make last year and address that question rather than address something like, you know, I'm obsessed with this person. I follow him around. I time my exit from work so that I will bump into him. Nobody talks about these things because they're too embarrassing. And, um, and you, the mm-hmm. you were, so what would you do? What was like the most embarrassing thing you did when you were kind of in this mindset? I could tell you the most, and I hope people won't be afraid of me, but uh, I had an obsession with the person in yoga class where I go every day. And so the moment I opened the door, my mind would go into, wait a minute, I need to calculate where am I going to place the yoga mat? Am I going to be next to him? Should I be two, two mats removed? Should I be on the back? Will I look at him better from that angle? And this conversation <laughs> went on in my mind for months um, uh, until gonna... I realized what I was doing. Uh, the problem is if we don't notice that this is what's happening and that this is an addiction, just as much as alcohol is an addiction, then we can't identify it. So we, we don't know where we're in it. So I'm going to call BS on this a little bit because that doesn't sound very embarrassing to me. Like and we've all gone through that. Tell me something even more embarrassing. Something more embarrassing than that? I think that's pretty embarrassing. I mean, I wouldn't want to meet this person I was obsessing over and letting him know that. It would be really embarrassing to me, and I'm doing it on the radio. And half what, a million what, people are listening to this. I mean, that's like, okay, we've all done that a little bit. Like, okay, she's at the copy machine now, so I'm going to go pretend to copy something on the copy machine. Okay, like, well, in India, a couple of years later, I meet this guy on the first day. This always happens on the first day. And I, I say to him, I want to show you around town. I'm already controlling, and I'm taking him on a date, even though he doesn't know this. He thinks I'm 
taking him on a date. Now you can say, you know, you're an attractive girl. Maybe he had thoughts. Okay. So then we go on this date and I sit him at lunch and I ask him, what do you think of love? And he says, well, you know, gives me some scripture definition. Love is universal and blah, blah. And I'm like, no, 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 no. What do you think about love, about man and woman, about getting married, about uh, this is a first interaction with a person. And I'm getting incredibly personal and annoying, likely. Um, I don't blame that guy for running away as fast as he could from me because I was clearly crazy. I was acting out of not knowing what I was doing. I was trying to make him fit my reality. So, so what did you do to, to start learning how to say, to, to kind of separate yourself out, out from this fantasy world? Right. Uh, well, uh, when I got back from that trip in India, I couldn't believe that again. And the key word there is again, I was crying. Uh, this guy went back to Canada. I was never going to see him again. He wasn't returning my emails. And, and this is the guy you had no, he, there was nothing romantic ever. It was just all your fantasy. Happened. Nothing happened ever. Uh, we went on two or three uh, dates or walks. I got really angry when he started paying attention to other friends of mine in India because I thought, wait a minute, you're with me. And he wasn't. Um, there was nothing. And um, so because th- this had not just happened once, it happened many times, as I tell all the stories in the book. Um, I, I was reading a book by Julia Cameron, and in the bibliography, it wasn't even the book, I, she said the chapter on withdrawal from the main book of the Sex and Love Addicts should be mandatory reading for everybody, everybody in the planet. And that was the first time, James, that I saw love and addiction in the same sentence the first time. And it, it, a light went on in my head. And, and I'm like, can you be addicted to? I thought addiction was just alcohol or drugs or cocaine. But love, uh, fantasy, that had never entered my, my mind. And that was the moment that the light went on. Oh, Jesus, I've been doing this again and again. This is what I'm doing. And it, it didn't change overnight. In fact, I still work at it. Um, but at least I, I know became aware. I know you're addicted to me. So I'm that... totally addicted to you. Yes, I am addicted to you. So, so what did you do? <laughs> what did, is there? A, was there a meeting or something? There like was what? a meeting. There is an organization is uh, for sex and love addicts. And um, wait, are you uh, are you a sex addict? Were you were you a sex addict at this time? No, I believe that's more of a and, and this is an overgeneralization, so I could be completely wrong. But in, in, in the way I've seen, it seems to me that sex is more the men issue and love is more the women issue, although men get the love and women get the sex, but in less numbers, in my opinion, which could be complete is generalization. Why they put the groups together, though? Like, what's the point? No, no, there are there are divisions. If you check, there are just sex addictions uh, and just love addiction. Uh, there are meetings becoming an addicted to a person. Uh, so they do separate that they have men meetings, women meetings. I went to a general one on uh, sexual anorectics because really that was the only one that fit my schedule at the time I was working full time and uh, it was very difficult for me. And so when I got there, I said, you know, hi, my name is Claudia and I think I'm a love addict, but I have no idea really. And I was hoping that people would say, oh, don't worry. That's not you. Like, don't worry about it. Just go home. You're fine. And instead, uh, they said, keep coming back, which is the universal thing that everyone says in these 12-step meetings. And at that moment, I went, oh, no. That, that was the moment where it, it hit me um, like a thousand bricks. Oh, dear. <laughs> I'm in trouble. 
and um, and that started a process of identifying, I call it recovery, but really what it was is identifying what I was doing and changing behavior. And you've tried to change yourself, James. I know you do every six months. You know that is not that simple. It requires work. It requires vigilance, paying attention, being in the moment. Uh, so when I met you, I have recovery on me, which helped actually see who I had in front of me rather than try to make you fit the image of what I wanted. Well, I'm glad I'm glad it worked out. <laughs> we'll tell that story in a, in a second, but because uh, that was a story too. But yeah, uh, but you also had some um, some stories here in not knowing. What- yeah, sure. Like I, I before I met you, I had a date with a, a, a woman, so I was you know in between marriages essentially, and I had just gotten uh, separated, and I had a date with a woman who had also been divorced her ex-husband had been worth hundreds of millions of dollars and so she was really looking for a specific type of guy and so right on the first date uh she asked me um what's your net worth and uh instead of just getting up and saying you know this is none of your business i'm probably not the right person you're looking for i I answered her question just because I couldn't say no. I didn't know how to say no to things that were probably not good for me. And I ended up wasting, you know, quite a bit of time trying to please this person who was clearly not the right person for me. And um, that's so- right. And in the end, and there you see she also had an image in her head and it requires a certain net worth. And she wanted to know on date one. And as you say, the power of no there's a problem there because she probably wasn't seeing what she was doing and you didn't even know how to say no. So in certain places, there is a need for, for, for kind of like the, 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 something to, a light to go off and say, oh, that's what I'm doing. And that requires some discernment, some paying attention. And I hope listening to this may, may by uh, recognizing that it, it happens to other people too, help others. It's really true because, I mean, when you talk about the stalking, definitely, you know, I've been in relationships where I've been so unhappy, but I don't really realize it. I don't say, no, this is not good for me. And instead, I'll do everything I can to being a a fake person and getting the other person to like me or I'll stalk or spy or whatever. Instead of just saying, no, I need to focus on me and my own personal health. And and that's what this book is really about. I mean, love and relationships are a big part of it, but only one love and relationships. Love and relationships is the area where we have the biggest potential to the rail into crazy real fast is, is, is the spot uh, where everything gets triggered because there is another person involved. And, you know, uh, they say uh, hell is other people. Uh, so that's where it gets triggered. But also, I think heaven is other people, too, and I never want to forget that part of the coin when we learn to say no. That's why I don't quite believe... I think there's a little more... I think you got another crazy story in there somewhere, but uh, maybe we'll get out of it out of you at some point. I love these. Claudia the crazy. I love going into the world like... Hey, I've got... Baptism of fire. I've got some crazy stories. I mean, look, I've been... Well, what's the most embarrassing story you have? Although you've told them all, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I I put a, a, an advertisement on Craigslist pretending to be psychic uh, so that I could 
get girls to write to me and I would write back to them and maybe go out with one of them. <laughs> that is pretty embarrassing. So, okay, <laughs> we're going to go on to the next now. We'll get back to this later. Um, you have the right to use your talents and allow abundance into your life. And you say you're entitled to say no. And I say you say, but we both say. I think I forget. Yes. I forget who Rich wrote which part. Uh, you're entitled to say no to whatever gets in the way of your creative force and keeps it from bringing you a life of abundance. And I sort of feel this is like the people who are kind of trapped in cubicles because they think if they um, leave the nine to five setting, there's no other way to make money and support their family and send their kids to college and and do all these things that are considered normal life. Is that what uh, you kind of meant with that or I kind of meant yes, with that? Um, I think that is definitely one of the areas, but also I believe that, for example, in the area of relationships, when you can finally channel it, and when you can find a, a partner or at least not waste your energy into, you know, pursuing people, then you have an outburst of energy uh, when you can stop pursuing people who are not available. Well, I mean, then I there's an er outburst of energy that can uh, be channeled towards creativity rather than doing stupid things. I, I could say, I mean, it's no coincidence that essentially a month after we were married, I started my blog in a much more authentic way, which really has kind of led to the books and the, this podcast and everything and, and a lot of abundance. So so you're right. It's not just relationships, though. I think a lot of it is, you know, being able to say no to uh, your boss who's yelling at you, being, being able to say no to colleagues that are harassing you or gossiping about you or whatever. Or family members. Sometimes it's family members yeah, that or, have an investment in keeping you small because they're afraid of you flourishing. And, and this is, again, unconscious, but it's real. They, they don't want it. They, they want to keep you down. Yeah, and this is related to the next one. You know, you have the right to assert what you want. So uh, yes. that's our next no, which is basically everyday colleagues, institutions, bosses, friends, family want you to attend to their needs. Uh, you're very, you're very strong on these. You, I remember when you started the debate on college, which you have your fifty alternatives to college now, uh, which is a great report free here on the on the radio show. Um, you had people that wanted to literally kill you. You've had death threats, and now it's a conversation in the media where you know the New York Times is doing articles and people are talking, and there is Peter Thiel doing his thing, and. Um, but you really started that one to sort of open the third eye on people on, wait, do I need to pay half a million dollars to get a degree in literature? Really? And that's one of those messages where we just go blind and take it by faith. Oh, yeah, I need to do that. I need to get myself into debt and indentured servitude. What is the expression you say? My English yeah. is not so good. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, yeah, so so look, people need to learn how to say how to say no to that sort of thing. So, um, but that's again related to the next one, which is you have the right to choose what stories you believe in. That's so right. A lot, a lot of us believe, okay, here's a path to happiness. Uh, go to college and spend $200,000. Then um, uh, get a job in a cubicle where you're spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in value to your bosses and the co corporation that hires you because you have to deliver more value than they pay you or else they're going to fire you. Yeah, and, and in I, the case of women, you have the case of, oh, I'm 35, I better get married and have children now because otherwise my life is over. And actually, your life can be over if you do that with the wrong person. And no questioning that, uh, just because it's imposed, the, talk, the, click, um, the clock ticking and 
ridiculous things that we as women get as messages that we have to do this and it has to be now <laughs> it's crazy yeah so again we're given like this kind of path to happiness when people don't realize that happiness itself is the path like for first focusing on your own internal happiness and then everything comes from right. that and no learning how to say no to these stories and and there's a kind of evolutionary and biological reason for why we construct these stories and we go over that in the book it's real that was one of the most fascinating things for me in the book like why from an evolutionary point of view it's very positive that we build these stories because that's how for instance Let's say I go to, I don't know, pick a school like University of Chicago and you go to University of Chicago. We might not we might be total strangers, but because we have this common story between us, we're able to trust each other and cooperate because that's how the species learned how to go from the middle of the food chain to the top of the food chain. Right. But, but at the same time, you know, we're no longer kind of hunting prey in the jungle. We have to learn how to use discernment and, and say no to some of these stories if we're really going to rise to the top and be unique individuals and successful and so on. Yes. Um, you know, this one's really important. It's not – the next one is is you, you have the right to take your time. This is not necessarily learning to say no, but it's learning to say um, – let me think about that. A lot of times people put pressure on you. Hey, tell me right now, are you coming to my wedding or not? And you have to be able to say, hey, let me tell you in a couple of days. Like people put so much pressure on the yes that it's very hard not only to say no, but to even say, hey, let me take my time and think. Uh, yes, and that is why one of the tips in negotiation, which I read, I believe, from you, is to always have a partner. So at the end of the conversation, you can say, this is wonderful. I still have to run it through my partner, though. There is a one last check that I need to do. And that one last check, you know, you can put it in any terms you want, but it's one last check with myself, really, and have some time to say, do I really want to do this? Oh, my God. And and I have to say, like, I know this the hard way. Like, sometimes I'll make decisions and you'll say, what? How could you have, <laughs> how could you have done that? And then uh, we're not speaking to each other for a day. So I always say, now, look, listen, make this whatever you're offering me. Make this easy for me to present to Claudia. Like, that's all I ask, because happy wife, happy life. That's and, right. That's uh, my you're my strongest negotiating tactic, Claudia. Um <laughs> All right. So next one is um, you have the right to be honest above all with yourself. We what does that mean in. about being honest with yourself? I think it ties in with what you just say. When you take your time, then you have an opportunity to, to weigh whether this is really the good direction that, that you want to go into. Uh, and also, I think, James, something happens. The no's have a, a little bit of a hierarchy to them. And uh, we went to something very gross, like don't kill yourself, check out your addictions. To We're getting more into the internal side of saying no, checking with myself. Is this the right thing for me? And and am I lying to myself? For example, well, what, okay. Give an for example, example uh, say I meet someone and is this, this person is someone really impressive. Am I changing the way I act? Am I lying to sound impressive? Am I doing things just so that I sound like something I am not? Where I am, am I turning into a, a crazy person just because I want to impress, for example? So, so obviously we talk about this in the, in the book, but what's, what's an exercise someone can do to kind of practice this internal honesty? How do you know if you're being honest with yourself? 
I really think it takes time and reflection. I, I think it takes silence, and that is why that comes later on. It takes um, time to connect with yourself. That's how I experience it. You probably do different. I don't know. No, I also think, you know, when you when oftentimes I'll say yes to things, and then I'll say, you know, this really is unpleasant for me. Like I'm feeling it in my body, like my gut or my heart or my head. You know, people don't realize, and I'm going to get into some kind of brain psychology, but you have more or you have just as many neurons in your gut as in your brain. People don't realize that the actual brain goes from your gut to your head and your head does some stuff but your gut does other things this is why sometimes when we're afraid we get quote-unquote butterflies in our stomach or we you know we actually feel you know we we it's like someone hit us in our in the gut when they when they tell us something that we don't like so our right. gut often responds because it's a more primal animal sort of brain our gut sometimes responds instinctively faster than the brain and i think kind of being a paying attention to that and being aware of that and you you mentioned sitting in silence i think when you sit in silence you get to explore a little bit more you know what's happening in the different parts of your body when different thoughts come up like you might think of a love relationship that's not going so well and you'll feel that in your heart first and then you'll start thinking in your brain oh i've got to do this this and this or you'll think about some situation in the future that you're scared of and you might think of you might first feel like a pang in your stomach or your gut, and then you'll start thinking of things in your brain. Yeah, so and not only that, but also sitting in silence. It has happened to me in a very clear way where I get an idea that I'd never thought of before, and it comes from nowhere. And uh, it actually works out very well. And I'm like, where did that come from? I have no idea. But it's very insightful. And it comes, you know how they say your best ideas come when you're singing in the shower or when you're relaxed and you're not, you, you can't find something. And then later on you're relaxing and you're like, oh, yeah, it's under the couch. Uh, it's in those moments when you let go of the brain that suddenly something comes in and gives you an insight. And I find that very valuable. But if there is no time during the day, if we're constantly running around, then there is never a time to catch up, take a breath. Well, I think I think that's part of the no of, of storytelling, because I think there's this myth that if you're not, quote unquote, productive all day long, then you're lazy or you're wasting time. When the reality is, actually, the more efficiently you use your time, the more productive you will be. So if you're able to relax for most of the day, but in efficiently use your time for three hours a day, you'll actually be much more productive than the person who's working and running and working and running 12 hours a day. And so now right. th this is not always possible. Like I'm, I'm kind of taking extremes, but uh, uh, productivity is not about time spent which is kind of the myth that you have to say no to, but about efficiency. And it's you have to learn by saying no to the things that make you unproductive or saying no to that myth, then you actually become hyperproductive. And it's much, much better for your life because then you can relax more. Yes, and I don't know if I can say this if you're going to be embarrassed, but we take two-minute breaks sometimes just to be together and to hold hands and kiss. And those are very renewing for me I'm... this is very embarrassing for me <laughs> what we take two minute breaks <laughs> they're very renewing to me they're very nurturing are you saying and... it only takes me two minutes we take hour and a half breaks <laughs> okay all right now that's embarrassing to me <laughs> 
So, um, all right, enough embarrassment. Um, but this leads to the next thing. You have the right to an abundant and fulfilled life. By the way, I'm just realizing we called this the the no bill of rights. We're, we're saying you have the right for everything. We don't say no here. How come we didn't say no to any of these things? Well, he says you're entitled to say no to the scarcity complex. Oh, yeah, that's right. So the next and sentence. any other complex for that matter. So, and so what is, describe the scarcity complex. Describe how you've experienced it and what it is. Look out the window. Any building in America, they're all empty. Jobs are disappearing. You're not going to have a paycheck. You're going to die hungry and alone. How do you feel, James? Now, that's even more embarrassing to me because that was the video trailer to Choose Yourself. And the idea of that video trailer was to essentially scare people, which I don't like to do. But the reality is... It's uh, very scary. People and are then- scared right now that... And they and people feel undeserving. Like people see all their friends losing their jobs, so they feel like, oh my gosh, it's going to happen to me next. So they so they focus more on the fear of scarcity than the the reality is that life is actually enormously abundant if you if you let it if you say no to the scarcity. And the problem is there is a I call it a monster, which is an energy that cannot be killed or uh, destroyed. is is a very real energy, and it will take hold of you. Uh, sometimes it does to me where you start thinking oh my god I'm not going to have money I'm going to starve and you go into these worst case scenarios and it's very difficult to get out of there because it takes over you and you're in a panic and there's no way you can return to the present moment there's no way you can even see that right now you're actually in a place where you have uh, air conditioning or warm weather and, and, and you're fine and you have food on the table but the, the fear takes hold of you and it's very very difficult to fight this monster that can take over and takes life sometimes you know you talk about the story of how one time you thought that having the life insurance would be better for your children so maybe if you killed yourself and this is in in the power of no uh, you will be doing them a service now what what kind of distorted thinking is that that is this monster energy that wants to take your life away and can take over you and saying no to that is not that simple it requires all the help that you can that you can master really to say no i have the right to abundance this isn't happening these are just thoughts well and you know a lot of times that that fear that scarcity fear it happens to me at least at three in the morning so yes. I'll wake up at like 3 a.m. scared to death. And I'll even know, I even know, okay, it must be 3 in the morning because I always think these are rational thoughts at 3 in the morning. And so what I try to do is then say to myself, okay, I'm going to schedule with myself to have an appointment with myself for 3 p.m. later today where I'll think about these things again. And I love that. by 3 p.m., I'm never really thinking about these things. I love that because you're putting a time buffer between the, the monster and you. I, I also think that another way to to help if you're awake at three in the morning, uh, exercise tends to help. Uh, but if that's not your thing, another thing that helps is to just write. Uh, if you write for three or four pages, just stream of consciousness, whatever is coming through, uh, you can plaster it on the paper, all the pain and all the anxiety and all the worry, and then close that notebook, even burn it if you don't want to see it anymore. Careful not to burn the house, but, uh, and, and that may ease the feelings just to get through that moment where that this, this monstru- monstrous energy is active in you. And to remember, this is not me. This is just an energy that has settled on me for the time being is not real. 
So, so we have a couple of more rights here, but I'm going to skip right to one of the chapters. Uh, it says saying no to abusive people. Yeah. And um, I'll read it a little bit. How do you how do you recognize who's abusive? Well, they try to make you feel guilty. They try to make you angry. They try to make you afraid. They try to make you feel wrong. They try to make themselves the victim. They try to turn others against you. So I would encourage people to basically like I have a one strike and you're out policy. Like I don't let anybody do these things to me, um, which almost sounds crazy. Like even in baseball, it's three strikes and you're out. So, but I would encourage people to at least at the very least make a list of anybody who in the past month did any of these things to you. Um, you know, like try to make you feel guilty, make you feel angry, make you feel afraid and really think about, do you need to engage with these people or any of these people as much as you do? Like, is there any way you can engage less with them and start engaging more with people who you love and respect and who love and respect you? I think this is, a, this is for me, one of the most important no's. And it really made a huge difference on not only my love life, thank you very much, Claudia, but also my financial life. When I started, when I stopped hanging out with people who were just bad for me financially, like they would introduce me to bad deals or they would lie or whatever, I started making, having so many more opportunities because suddenly there's room, not room to say yes, but there's just room for better opportunities. I'm not wasting my time, right. you, know, you know, trying to do a deal with a guy I know usually doesn't work out. So, uh, and you have a question here. Um, you say, always ask yourself, how do I feel about myself when I am with this person? So because people have different effects on you. So that's one way of recognizing if you feel Oof, after meeting someone, chances are maybe they, they, they try to make you feel guilty, angry, afraid. And then you can start to recognize it and bring it into the picture. It doesn't mean you have to do anything drastic, but you can start to notice, oh, my energy is sucked out of me when I'm in the presence of this person. And just the awareness sometimes helps you to to start to say, you know what, I'm I'm going to pass. I'm not going to engage. Well, you bring up a really good point because it really, what this book is about, and and this this I could say the same about choose yourself. What the, what this book is about is about energy. So every day, it's as if we're given a certain amount of energy to make it through the day. So we're awake roughly sixteen to nineteen hours a day. Uh, and we need enough energy to carry us through that day. And if people are draining us or situations are draining us or, uh, you know, life circumstances or health are draining us, we're not going to have the energy to, to make it. And uh, and what will happen is when you lose, when your energy kind of runs out, you're hungry. So you'll eat more. Your your willpower goes down, so you'll start saying yes to things you don't want to say yes to. Um, you know, you you won't have the energy to be creative, so your your oper your financial opportunities will run out. You'll you won't have the opportunity to you won't have the willpower to say no in um, loving relationships or not loving relationships that you need to say no to. Um, energy is so important, and so saying no is such a great. And learning how to say no is such a great way to give a gift to yourself of energy each day. And, I, right. I, you know, for me, that was the important part of not necessarily writing this book, but of giving myself this gift, this power of no. That is the actual power of no. That's why we call it. That's why we call the book not we don't call the book how to say no. We call the book the power of no, because this is the power.
Yes, and because when the no's are well placed in the areas where you need to observe in your life, then a bigger yes appears, which is you have energy. You have energy to do what, what you love doing. And I've seen this in you, James, very much. You do only work you love right now, and that wasn't the case when I met you. And um, it's because you were able to stop interacting with some very with, with people who were just not good for you in your own life. And that freed your energy to direct it to your blog, to writing, the passion that you have, that every day you have to read for hours and get an inspiration. And then I see you go into the computer with this light that is emanating from you and it has to be written now and uh, and all that energy if you wake up to someone who's saying hey you're horrible then what do you you, you just like it, you know you is that like your ex-boyfriend did he wake up saying that or no i'm trying to imitate louis ck in a very bad way oh, okay good, good imitation <laughs> good imitation well okay but claudia you've definitely um said yes to some hor pretty horrible life circumstances like you know talk about i'm gonna you know maybe i'm gonna embarrass you but talk about your different addictions or uh, earlier in your life uh, well, the, the biggest issue for me has been the, the love addiction, really. And, uh, and no, that... I'm, going, I'm going way back. You're going way back? Yeah, like... But where are you going, James? Like age 19. Okay, yes, uh, of course. Well, when I was 18, actually, I had uh, the privilege of a tremendous situation happening in my life, whereby I went to my first day of work and my first day of university in Buenos Aires. And at 11 o'clock... My father came in and announced that my mother was dead. Uh, what do you mean? He came in where? Like your... I was working at Hertz Rent-A-Car uh, because I knew English, which wasn't true at all. <laughs> I have no idea why anyone thought that I spoke English. Uh, but the Americans would come and they liked me. You know, I guess I was a pretty 19-year-old. Were they, just, were I they don't know. flirting with you? Were they... Totally. To be, uh, you, you cannot believe it, the level of flirting that was going on. <laughs> Do I, do was I need ridiculous. to kill anybody? Did anybody take advantage? No, those people are probably dead. They were all grossly overweight, and uh, they were working for some company down there in Argentina. I don't know. God bless them. I hope they're well. But they were kind of older, much older than me at that time. I'm going to say in their 50s. So by now, you know, 20 years later, um, they're no threat to you. All right, good. Yes. So I was working here, and I had a... First day of work, first day of university, and this happens to me, and we I had no idea. My father wouldn't tell me what happened. <laughs> and uh, on the way so, to so the... So he just came in, and he said, come with me, or he said, your mother's dead? He said, dead. your mother's dead, to, to which I started crying, not because I was sad, but because I thought that's what you did when somebody told you that. That's the level of shock. What was your shock. first reaction? Like, you obviously... When was the last time you had seen your mother before that? Two hours ago, and she was doing laundry. Uh, so why did you even believe your dad? Because he said so. Okay. I, I, I really don't know. I, I believed him. I didn't think that in the state he was that he was lying. It, it felt to me that he was speaking the truth. Um, but, you know, for, just to give you uh, what shock will do to a human being, the first thing that came to my mind was, okay, this is enough drama. I'm going to lose weight and be skinny. Check it out. That's, what, that's the thought that went through my mind on hearing this news. That's, so, that's pretty f***ed up. I know. It's a, it's a complete denial. It's a complete state of shock. It's a complete, I, I, I cannot understand this information. So my brain just threw whatever at it because it was beyond what I could understand. Uh, so in, a, in a weird way, your brain 
was protects trying to protect you. you. Yes. It protects you. Yeah, he thinks it's a good thing. And, and it will send, uh, it sends all sorts of strange things. But um, so we, we got in the car and we go back to this apartment and there is three ambulances. I don't understand. One person's dead. There was three ambulances and 200 onlookers. And it turns out my mother had jumped out of a window of the seventh floor. It was her wedding anniversary. Well, it, it was devastating to me. I mean, I, I come into this apartment. There's 200 people looking at me. There's my family that sort of blurs in, in, in with the background. And well, who, I was... Who from your family was there? Everybody. All my mother had uh, nine brothers and sisters. So the ones that lived in Buenos Aires, not up north in Argentina, were there. And I was... Uh, I, I, I really didn't know what was happening. I felt the world was spinning. Um, I, I couldn't understand. And I went straight to that apartment, 1H. Uh, and I said to the police officer guarding the door, I'm going in. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check this out. I need to look at it. And he said, no, you can't. Uh, there's police doing investigation. And I said, oh, no. And I was in a state. I was like, you don't understand. I'm going in. And uh, because that way I felt powerful rather than what I was really feeling, which I didn't want to see. And uh, and he lowered his tone and sort of looked at me and said, you really, really don't want to see this. And that's when I broke down. That's when he hit me. OK, no, this happened. Shoot. And from that day, I really lost it. I, so, so wait, when when at that point, when the police officer said that, did you already know that your mom had killed herself or did you not know yes. what had happened? My father had told me in the car that he had jumped. She had jumped out of the window. So I, I knew that, but it wasn't real. He was seeing the ambulances, seeing the 200 people and seeing the apartment door open at one age. And this police officer there saying, no, you can't go in. Then I knew she was there. And it's, it's one of the most horrible things that can happen is suicide in the family. Um, we saw her being wheeled out of um, the apartment. She was covered in white like they do in the movies. They cover her with a blanket. And I feared, I, I feared, you know, what if an arm falls out? What, uh, it was really horrible. It was, it was really a, a horrible thing. I, when this police officer said, you don't want to see this, I, I melted. And my whole life, I'm going to say suicide in a family, it really destroys everyone in the family. I get it that people want to kill themselves because I have wanted to kill myself many times after that. But I would say to anyone considering it, just know that you're literally destroying everyone around you for the rest of their lives. Because I never to this day have come to terms with what happened to her. There was no note. There was no nothing. Um, what do you what do you think happened then? So you had seen her just two hours prior. What do you think was going through her mind? Well, she wasn't in a good state to begin with. She had been sleeping a lot, depressed. I had seen that. But as a you know, I was barely eighteen when this happened. So growing up, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, I did see her in bed all the time. But because of the family dynamics I had, I didn't think that was abnormal or not the way everyone else was. Um, you know, my father was unavailable. They had separated. He was really rude to her and they fought all the time. So I thought that was how every family in the world was. And uh, come to think of it, many families are dysfunctional. I'm not alone. I'm not saying, oh, look at me. I'm the special. I'm not special. There's a lot of dysfunctions going on. But uh, I thought it was normal. And so I didn't see the signs coming. I didn't see. But you asked me, what do I think happened to her? 
And I will tell you, I think the same monster that I told you that we were talking about earlier that made you think that your children will be better off with um, the life insurance rather than with your energy is, is the monster that took over her and where her vision went into, into funnel vision and she could only see one solution to the disaster she thought was her life and possessed with this energy, she just thought this is the only thing that I can do right now and she convinced herself she couldn't see the bigger picture and she did it. And frankly, it's, a, it's, a, it's an strange thing to do. I mean, jumping out of a window to me sounds like a, um, like a painful thing to do, you know, but uh, whatever is, is, is what happened. You know, um, so, okay, so describe what, what, and I know the answer to this, but describe what happened to you, let's say, in the year after that. Well, the thing is, I didn't know what to do. I literally, uh, my father, nobody in my family would talk about it. Everybody wanted to put put it under the rug like it didn't happen and uh, I, I just I, you know my mother had been taking prescription drugs so I actually made myself a, a, went to a printer and got myself a, a prescription block and made a stamp from a doctor that's how it was in Argentina in those days and got the insurance companies to pay for my um, prescription drugs that I prescribed myself and that deteriorated into cocaine use and uh it wasn't pretty. I was at 19. I weighed 96 pounds. And the fact that I'm alive today is a miracle. I definitely had an angel looking after me. I remember being at work. I had a night job, uh, downtown Buenos Aires in a very expensive building with some conspiracy theory kind of person who wrote a magazine. And there was a pile of cocaine on the table. And I uh, had some of that. And then I proceeded to faint in the bathroom at 96 pounds. Uh, so it was it wasn't and, pretty. And then what happened? Like, how did you survive even that night? Uh, that night, I I think somebody found me in the bathroom. I then I went to the pantry and decided to eat. You know, one of the things with me was being skinny at the time, so I thought I was very skinny. Uh, I there was ham in the refrigerator. I had some ham, and then I forced myself to start eating, and uh, I quit that job. And um, I, I'm going to say there was a, an energy greater than me. There was the monster that my mother had, but there was also some energy that came to help me, to literally guide me out of that mess, little by little, one day at a time. But the fantasy part remained, the me trying to control the, you know, I was pretty screwed up. What, what am I going to say? Is the truth. I, I got really screwed up. Let, let me ask you, like, do you, do you, think, you um, do you think you forgive your mom for what you, she did? Um, I, I, I want to forgive her. I, um, I definitely, in my right frame of mind, I'll say yes, because all of that made me the woman I am today. So it definitely was what I needed to, to learn. Uh, I will never understand it, though. I still don't. And it still hurts. To this day, I pray for the courage to face every day and, and not have that monster energy take over me. So it's a, daily, it's a daily, what do I need to say no to today? I see that energy coming. I see the pressure coming. I see the crazy coming. I'm going to say no to that. Well, I'm going to find whatever helps me. You know, um, part of, and we talk about this in the book, we have a chapter called The Compassionate No, part yes. of forgiving others is is intimately related to forgiving yourself so because everything's a two-way street so do you feel like deep down there's an element where you need to forgive yourself for what happened 
Yeah, they say that children blame themselves a lot uh, for what happens to their parents. So I'm sure I blame myself, even though perhaps not that aware that I didn't do anything. I didn't save her. I couldn't I didn't see it. Uh, but the truth is, I am aware now I was a kid and I didn't see it because no kid sometimes sees things like that. So I do know I'm, I'm not to blame. It's not my fault that that happened to her. She had, there was something in her that um, she couldn't deal with, some kind of a monster. So I do forgive myself, yes. And so we talk about in this exercise, and the exercise is called Forgiving Yourself, that it is through learning how to forgive yourself that you learn how to speak truth to those around you. Because forgiving yourself is intimately related to kind of coming full circle around the problem and the relationship with the person and saying no to these feelings that might build up over years uh, about a person. And, and, and truth becomes a powerful resource that you get once you learn how to say no. And it's incredibly, it's incredibly important. So it's, yes. uh, yes, it is. Of course, you know, and we, we've seen this just with, you know, just kind of the reaction that I get on my blog and, and so on. Um, you're right. You did say whenever you started telling the truth, people started asking you, did you have a heart attack? Did you have a stroke? What happened to you? Are you mentally ill? Yeah, and, so yeah, people thought I was having a nervous breakdown. And all I was doing was saying the truth, which must be extremely unusual on Wall Street, because it was all my Wall Street friends who kept saying this is like watching a train wreck in action. But here I am. Yeah, and it's not just in Wall Street. You know, I've seen it in the yoga world in which I'm pretty active, uh, going rampant. There is denial. There is uh, an unwillingness to talk about things. There's a big fear everywhere. And uh, speaking truth is uh, seen a little bit with distrust, like what the hell is going on there? Uh, and yet, like you say, sometimes when you speak the truth, then you become the, the one that's lit up, the one that's saying, oh, wait. I can see in that person that what's happening to me is not so crazy. We're, we're together on these. There is a correlation. I can leave. Well, because- and also the, the thing about the truth is, is that, you know, we, we, we sort of call this the reverse law of attraction in the book. Like, I'm not a big believer in the law of attraction, that if you visualize money in your, refrig- in your refrigerator, then suddenly it's going to be there in the morning. Or if you visualize a ticket to Mexico, then suddenly it's going to be there in the morning. But I do think that if you're always honest to a fault, like, and you talk about this, Claudia, not even stealing, like, paper clips from the office supplies closet. Like, Which I've done. <laughs> right. And I have also. But if you if you teach yourself to always be as honest as possible, then your word has a certain power. Then, it does. It becomes at, law. What you say happens. Right. So and at first, that, that law is like uh, your word becomes almost like ripples of an, an ocean. You know, a rock dropped an ocean. The ripples go out to the shore. So at first, the people around you realize, oh, he or she said that, so it must be true. I'm going to pay attention. Then your colleagues realize, oh, here's a trusted source. I can rely on this person's word for either good advice or for consulting or for, you know, opportunities or whatever. But ultimately, the more your your word is honest, it becomes the word. So yes. it really has a certain power that the universe starts to listen. And I'm not even saying this in this corny way because we've seen it happen. Like, if you're honest to a fault, that is like an unbelievable power. So if you say no 
to lying because you don't need to you don't need to please people you don't need to like manipulate people which is all kind of related to lying like all these different ways that people think lying benefits them like if i show my real self they won't like me or if i say it this way they're more likely to agree to this deal or to to like me or whatever yes so i'm related to that there is also i today i put in facebook this morning i asked people to ask me questions because we were doing this podcast and many people have trouble saying their truth when they know it's going to be perceived as snobbish or when they think that they have to because it's a family member so they must take care of this person or the, 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 the needs of others must be put ahead of them. And I think it's important to recognize that A, there is ways of speaking the truth that will not hurt, that it takes extra energy, but you can be perceived as snob because you say you don't, you can't do this, or you can be perceived as, if you put it in the right wording, as this is a conversation I'm having with you and I'm explaining to you, unfortunately, I can't do it for this, this, and that reason. So it can be put in, in the right words and that takes some extra energy and second is that other than babies that really they need to be prioritized any other adult person can take care of themselves to a certain extent obviously aging parents have issues too but there has to be a way in which each of us needs to take care of ourselves first and that may mean considering options so that that can happen because if we don't then we burn out so that's the truth of of, of what we need Right. And, you know, again, a lot of this, the burnout, you know, that that phrase itself, a lot of this is really, you know, it's not just about saying no to somebody who's abusive or someone who's um, like a boss or a, or a spouse or a partner who's, you know, being upsetting or abusive or whatever. It's really about conserving energy. And I find um, one thing that a lot of people do that they don't realize the harmful effects of is uh, complaining. And we've talked about this a lot, that complaining will never, ever solve a single problem, but it will only take energy away from you, energy that you need to solve a problem. And so we have in the book, we suggest, uh, and Claudia, I think you wrote this section. I love this section, yes. Yeah, I, I'm, I can't find it in the book right now. But Well, uh, what happened was I went to a workshop and they gave us all these rubber band that you would put in your wrist. And so for one week, you were supposed to wear these rubber band. And whenever you heard yourself complaining, you were supposed to stretch it really, really far and hit yourself so that the complaining would have a painful effect on the body at the at the very visceral and biological level so that you could train yourself to stop complaining you know what was interesting to me after that we went on a hike with everybody in the group and people were complaining in front of me and i was like do you realize you're complaining right there because it's so easy to just go into complaining mode mode without even noticing and so this is the complaining diet um you you don't even have to wear the rubber band but whenever you catch yourself complaining then the clock starts again and in the book i think it's seven seven days one week and if you can't do it for one week then you have to start again uh, and see what happens if you can avoid complaining for seven days so far i've been trying for seven years the clock has restarted every time unfortunately it's, I, it's really hard like you know complaining is draining so so it's really hard to not complain like somebody does something and you say oh uh, it's his fault my day was ruined or you know it's her fault i'm late for this uh or 
I don't know, there's a million things. Like, what I would recommend, actually, and what I sometimes do is I make a list of all the things I've complained about in the past day because this way then for the next day I'll be aware if any of these items come up in my brain. And so I can say, okay, I'm not complaining about that right now because I'm on the no complaints diet. So I encourage sometimes a week is too hard. I think we recommend in the book go on a no complaints diet for a week. Just do it for a day and just see just and and don't be the key is don't be upset at yourself when you catch yourself complaining, but count count how many times You've caught yourself mentally complaining like, oh, God, this guy cut me off on the road. That's a complaint. So it doesn't get you to your location any faster. And it just uses mental willpower. And that means it's using every single cell in your body for that one moment that is so worthless. And I will tell you a really important thing. You know, I can lose $20. It could fall out of my pocket. I could lose $20 in the street. And then I'll make that $20 back at some point or whatever. It doesn't even matter. But if I lose even five minutes of my time, I will never, ever get those five minutes back. Those five minutes are lost forever. And if you add up all the times you complain during the day, you it's, it's it comes to, and I've done this, it comes to a lot more than five minutes. So this is a very important part of the of the power of no is the idea that complaining is draining. Yeah, I have, and it, it can take over in airplanes. Like, mm, they don't they don't have Wi Fi, or the seat doesn't go very far. And yeah, it or, stinks. Yeah, or like my seat doesn't go back, but the guy just leaned all the way back into me. I hate that. One way to turn it around also is when you can recognize it. Oh, I'm complaining. Um, wh- what can I do? How can I turn it on to me? And you know, maybe I don't need the internet right now. Maybe I can read a book and and change the the, the cards on the complaining to make it to because there's an energy there underneath it all. There's an energy that wants to go into but you can turn it around and, and say, okay, let me use this energy since it's here uh, to something else. Well, changing the conversation either in your head or, or with a coworker or whatever is always really important. So when you recognize that something's going into no territory, whether it's in your head or with a colleague or with someone you're in love with or whatever, changing the conversation to be more positive or something that, that uh, you know, doesn't drag you down as much is really important. And, and again, I'm not trying to advertise too much this book. We're, we're trying to, I'm trying to give as many useful things as possible, but, but that's covered in the book as well. That's right, yes. So, so there's a lot more in this book, and uh, I'll let, you know, I'd be really grateful to all listeners if you can pre-order it because obviously we want to, um, we want a lot of people to read it. We, we believe in the message, and if it gets on various bestseller lists, uh, it's, it's, it's great for us, and more people will read it. Um, you know, and I think it's incredibly useful. It's almost like a, a sequel to, to choose yourself. I myself found that as I began applying the techniques in this book, I, I, it's no joke. I literally financially, it became incredibly lucrative to me to say no. And I even give a negotiating technique of how to specifically say three no's and a yes. Uh, and I've used that in various negotiating techniques and so on. But what I want to talk about, Claudia, is what was it like to write a book with me? 
Yeah, that was very interesting, James. That was very interesting in every way. Yeah, I've never written a book with anyone except one time when it doesn't count where I'm not even going to mention the book. It was so right. stupid. But So I've never even really written a book with anybody before. But this one, just to give the audience, you know, James and I are together 24-7. There is no break ever. Oh, my God. <laughs> we, we live and work together and we feed on each other's energy and ideas and, uh, and suddenly there was a book to write and there was 50,000 words that had to be materialized and for me I mean how lucky am I I get to write a book with James Altucher who's a bestseller author yes that's true and so it also brought a lot of insecurities for me I had um, sort of like uh, these uh, Broadway sign fears is my name going to be under him is it going to be and can I use my full name it's just like that to the to all the way to Am I going to have as many words as he does? Um, but it was very interesting to, we went away to write it, to have some silence and uh, to oh, be able to focus oh, on it. Let me just, let you, you're, you're passing by something here. We went away to write. For, for, for me, there was a big reason for that. So one time we were writing, before, before, long before this, one time we were writing and we were doing some editing and I sent you up some edits and you came right down. You're like storming down. Uh-oh. And I... And I <laughs> You're like storming down and I could I could and then you said, uh, did you even look at this before you sent it back to me? And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I got I got really like angry. <laughs> did I do that? <laughs> yeah, I got really angry for a second. Like, you know, of course I looked at it and I worked hard on those edits. And like the I'm first sorry. thing, the first thing back was like this negative comment. So so two things there. One is. Oh, when you're when you're writing something with someone, it doesn't matter if they're your wife or someone random. Um you know, always start off when you're interacting, always start off with some constructive criticism, like, well, or start off with something positive, like, okay, I like this part, but here's where, but here's where I think, uh, because there's always going to be something good. And so, but here's where I think we could have maybe improved a little bit. And here's what I would suggest. What do you think of this? So start, be as constructive as possible. Like say, you know, being destructive and I am criticizing you, Claudia here being destructive. Oh, I know uh, (laughs) being destructive is never going to work out, but, but I'm being, this is constructive criticism. I'm, I'm saying how in general, but ultimately I wanted to go, we went away not just any place to write. We went to a place where it was specifically a silent retreat. So this way we couldn't actually talk to each other while we were writing our sections. So yeah, it I was do- one of those places that has dormitories that are separate for the men and the women. And so you, you, we couldn't even see each other in the morning to have complete silence and dedication. Yeah. So I wanted to make sure, you know, cause I was, uh, I was writing about, 10 to 20 pages a day and I just wanted to make sure I was just cruising right through this so that the entire book you know between your writing and my writing the entire book can get finished and whether it was good or bad at that point didn't matter I just wanted to finish the first draft before any more clawing or whatever would happen um, yeah. <laughs> before we started self-editing each other. Um, uh, by the way, that was only three days. I want to make that clear. It wasn't two weeks in a cabin in Vermont or anything like that. It was hard work and it was three full days of silence and writing. That was it. And it wasn't idyllic or paradise. It was just writing. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was hard work. Like we, uh, we were, I was writing from 6 a.m. till, till, well, for me, 6 at night because I'd go to sleep early. And, um, and, and then being, in the afternoons, we would talk sometimes and compare notes and talk about what came up. 
Yeah, but not that much. Like we didn't. I I didn't really want to talk about the book. We would take walks with each other, but I didn't want to talk so much about the book because that's true. I forgot that. Yeah. Yeah, because then we would get into the. You know, oh, look, I was criticizing you too. I'm not innocent. Like, <laughs> you know, I I wanted to make sure we finished the first draft, and then after that first draft, we probably did something like ten to twenty rewrites before we even sent to the publisher it was a it was a, a a long process but that silent retreat was critical for for finishing the book that was yeah. the only way i could do it and the interesting thing is that it, it got to be a lot more pleasant on edits i think uh, in the beginning there was a, a certain sort of fear and anxiety but as we started rewriting we got to be very collaborative i was like oh i can't look at this section anymore can you rewrite this it needs help and you were like sure and you would sit down in the computer and then we would read another paragraph and uh, and i would add something uh, as a suggestion of the editors or you uh, flesh out something more and it ended up being very pleasant in the end, it had its ups and downs and overall, just like a marriage, I suppose you could say. Yeah, no, it's definitely, I definitely think it tested the marriage. Like, I was thinking like, oh, gosh, like, we got to stay married at least until this book comes out. <laughs> so, you know, you know, but ultimately, every, every challenge like this, you know, you can, you have a, is a fork in the road. You could either come out on the positive side or the negative side. And I, and I think not only is the, did the book come out really well, like we, we just got our first galley copies. So not only did the book come out very well, but I think we developed a strategy of working together that, uh, works really well now. And we did not have that strategy in place in the beginning because it was very painful in the beginning. Yes, it, yes, it was in the beginning. But uh, overall, I'm really happy and excited that that we did it. Um, I think it it is like one of those things where it what doesn't kill you makes makes you stronger. And uh, learning uh, to the creative writing process with you was very interesting. And um, I'm looking forward to writing a book by myself. But I'm also looking forward what? to You're not working to, do to working with you again. I am actually. I, I I'm actually looking forward to both. What um what what's your next book going to be? If you if you had your dream come true, what would be your next book? I'm writing on yoga. Oh, with you. Yeah. Maybe the power of yes. Oh, the power of yes. That would be a good one. <laughs> what's what's the chapter title? What are some chapter titles? Uh saying yes to your dreams. I like I'm that. I'm coming off the top of my head. You're totally cold. You never prepared me for these, so I could be talking baloney. Well, well, okay. Let's talk about when we first met, because I want to tell one story, and then we'll we'll bring this podcast. We're going to start to bring this podcast to a close. Yeah. So uh, I wrote to you, and we were talking. We met online dating, and uh, for me, online dating was like a full-time job. I was like sending out a hundred messages a day. So I wrote to you. You were, you were a pretty face that just popped up on my screen, and I wrote to you. I had four days onto that website. I had just uh, registered. Yeah, J date. Even though you weren't Jewish, so even though I wasn't Jewish, yeah. that's right. So 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 I. Wrote... And that was the wrong thing. I apologize to all Jewish women because I know I wasn't supposed to do that. But I'm sorry. Well, but you know, I, J... I got my two. You know, J day now has made the rules a lot more strict. Like you really, it's like practically you have to prove it now. Well, but good for them. Good for them. You have a blood type, but uh, uh, <laughs> you, you. I wrote to you and said, "Where are you from?" You wrote back and said, "Buenos Aires," and I said, "Oh, that's great. I uh, I've never been to Brazil." So that's right. 
No, and of and course, Brazil is not where Buenos Aires is. Don't Brazil is another. <laughs> yes, it's a huge country, borders with Argentina, where Buenos Aires is, and Brazil is north of Argentina. So oh, yes. Okay, let me just ask this because I right now I don't even know this. Like five years later, Brazil borders Argentina. Yes, a little bit. There is a point where. Oh, yes, it does. Okay, so so. So, A, you know, I don't know what it is, whether I didn't take geography or I don't remember it or whatever, but I was, I demonstrated, like, extreme stupidity. You were a very pretty girl, like, on this site, and I'm sure other people were writing you. Why did you even respond to me after that point? Like, I didn't clearly... think it was that much of a big deal, really. And and you were, you had a very nice opening line. Uh, you said to me, you didn't even have a photo. That was a bigger issue for me. No photo was a no. Well, because but... I'm an ugly guy, so of course I'm not going to put a photo up there well whatever your reasoning for me it was no photo he's out and uh, you didn't have one but your subject is what did it you said you sound very interesting and so flattery as you know will get you very very far so i had to open that just because you had said that and within the email you said i don't put my picture because i go on tv a lot which was like tv alert flash alert he must be someone famous or something. And then there was a link where I could download the photo. And I had a very slow internet connection in West Orange, New Jersey. And um, and your picture came line by line. And I really saw that you needed a hug, it seemed to me. And that was very I did, cute. I did need a hug. I was very <laughs> hugless at the time. So... Uh, and I'm glad that TV, that TV line worked. I was on like the lowest rated show ever, uh, you know, once a week. But hey, it worked. So it worked. So it that worked. was good. That was brilliant. If you're that you, listening, that you were that. so shallow that just some guy being on TV is enough for you to overcome every other possible negative. That was not true. You're totally making putting those words in my mouth, and that wasn't the case at all. I was really listening at that point. I was like, "Who is this person? Okay, he's cute, but and who that, is he?" And then I was really trying to get you to agree to dinner, but you refused. You would only agree to tea. Right, because uh, I, by, by the time I was dating you, I had a support group of people. I was going to, I was fiercely independent. I had my tango dancing, my dance, my yoga, and everything was run by, with reality checks with help from my friends. And so I knew that I needed to get to know you. And frankly, I don't subscribe to going to dinner with someone because what if you get bored, you know, and it, there's an expensive exchange um, that the man usually pays because it's the first date and because that's just the way it is. I don't know why but I, it's the way it is and so I didn't want to do that I didn't want to put all of that on the table because I thought it distracted me from actually seeing who was in front of me and a one hour cup of tea for me was enough to have an exit strategy and to actually meet the person to know I, I mean I went on a couple of days and people had lied to me and I was like okay that's great I'm not going to teach you anything I'm not going to tell you anything it's just goodbye um, and so one hour was enough and uh, you finally agreed to the one hour even though you wanted the dinner and we ended up spending more time right because the conversation was very fluid and you were very interesting and you gave me way more information than I wanted to know but it, it was good to be able to hear and to rather than ask you your net worth to be able to see who is this person do I like him do I like who I become when I'm with him and then w what I remember is then we took a walk and we sat on a bench and we were kind of silent, like we had sort of run out of things to say for that day. There was and, a long silence, yeah. And that's in the comic book that you have, is drawn in there. Yeah, and, and 
I I actually liked it because it wasn't like an awkward silence. I actually felt really comfortable being being silent with you, and I had never experienced that really on a date. And yes, it felt comfortable. And of course, on the second and third date, I also tried to get you drunk without success. I think I think it was only by the fourth date I finally got you to drink some alcohol, and then of Very course, little. of course, yeah, we stopped. I started following your advice and um, stopped drinking alcohol myself a few months later, but uh, that's a whole other story. You started doing yoga. You came to me to India to do yoga. You you did things you never thought you would ever I totally lost everything. (laughs) All my whole personality got absorbed into you. So now I'm like practically... Go, a world traveler. I never left my. I'm. I'm literally sitting in a closet right now doing this podcast. And I. I got out of my closet and went to India a bunch of times. Went to Argentina. Go traveled all over the world. You got me everywhere. And you but liked it. I did. I did. I. I admit that. But um. Anyway, I really. First off, Claudia, this is so great having you on my podcast. Oh, I am honored. We had a lot of fun, and uh, uh, I really hope people. Go to Amazon, pre-order The Power of No. I don't care if you get it uh, paperback or Kindle, however you want to get it. It really helps us a lot because uh, it'll help it get onto the bestseller list. And I really believe in the message. And and we both really hope that the the word gets out there. And I think it's... Look, it was it's fun for me to read even now. I wrote this. You know, we wrote this. I should say I'm giving myself away here, my ego away. We wrote this like almost a year ago now, and now it's a pleasure to see it and read it. I'm almost surprised. It's a beautiful it. book. It's a beautiful book. I really love the design, and uh, I like the dedication to Eckhart Tolle to address the elephant in the room, and I well, like the content. Yeah, because we stole the first 12 letters or 10 letters of his title. Um, and let's face it, James, the, the book kind of looks like The Power of No. Yeah, of now. the designer made the cover like almost exactly He's like cheeky. The Power of Now. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it will be in every Barnes and Nobles on the West and East Coast and somewhere in other states as well. Right. But uh, but please pre-order it first. And, and I hope you can review it also because then it helps the Amazon rankings when people review it. Uh, and plus, we just would love to know what you think. Uh, and... Uh, so, Claudia, thanks a lot. I'm going to say goodbye now. And Thank you. I'll, goodbye. I'm gonna this was talking, wonderful. I'm going to meet you upstairs for a two-minute break. So okay. i got to take a break after this. <laughs> okay. Okay, thanks a lot. Goodbye. Bye-bye. For more from James, check out The James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com. And get yourself on the free insiders list today. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.